0: Treasures and transformations. With the adults at work all day, the remaining youth were left without supervision and were running wild. Some enlightened leaders in the ghetto realized that to save the children they had to get them off the streets. In the summer of 1942, the Eltestenrat requested permission from the Nazis to establish a vocational school for children aged 12 to 15. The elders said that they would train the youngsters to be useful for the war effort. Permission was granted by the Nazis. Before the war, Kaunas had a well-known Jewish trade school run by the ORT, Organization for Rehabilitation and Training. Many of the staff and teachers from the school were now in the ghetto. Jacob Olejski, who was the previous director of Ort Kaunas, became the director of the proposed ghetto training school, the Fachschule. A notice appeared at the Eltestenrat that they were going to open a school to teach boys locksmithing and metalwork, carpentry, woodwork, and bricklaying. Girls would be taught sewing. I was amongst the first boys to volunteer to learn locksmithing. When I arrived at the first morning, I found a teacher, but no school. Although the Germans had given permission to go ahead with the school, there was absolutely no equipment provided. The teacher, Yerachmiel Feldman, was a skilled instructor from the Kaunas Ort School. He announced to the few boys who showed up that he would teach us locksmithing and metalwork, but that we first needed to find tools and build a school. He suggested that we go to the basement of old houses and look for tools of any kind, no matter how rusted or damaged they were. He said we should also bring back any old metal bedsteads that were made of solid iron. The newer ones were made of metal pipes and were not suitable for us. We were disappointed that there was no real school, but we went to work scavenging in the ghetto. To our surprise, we very soon discovered treasure. The ghetto, as I mentioned, was in the oldest, most impoverished Jewish section of the city. Before the war, The area had housed workshops and small manufacturing places of all kinds. Now the people were crowded into every available room. They had thrown out anything that used to fill the rooms. Tools and drill stands, scrap metal, old beds and old motors were simply dumped in the crawl spaces under the floors. We explored these dark spaces and ran back to Mr. Feldman in Triumph, when we found something. After more than a week of this activity, our group of potential students had grown. With the energy and enthusiasm of youth, we had collected a huge pile of every kind of metal, tool, and machinery part. Feldman was a king of the heap. (laughs) When we brought something that we thought looked like garbage, he encouraged us by saying, that will be very useful. Wait till we clean it up. You'll see. Feldman then sent us out to an abandoned building to pick up wooden boards so we could build workbenches. A saw materialized from somewhere, and soon we had built several very sturdy benches. Some were longer than others, depending on the wood we could find, but all were the same height and widths we lined them up in one spacious room in two rows to our considerable surprise feldman pulled out vices from the junk pile covered in dirt and rust we had not recognized them as essential pieces of equipment each boy was given one vice a cloth a can of paraffin and a piece of sandpaper after we cleaned the vices with the paraffin from the outside We had to take them apart and clean the shreds and the inside of the jaws. We used bits of metal in scratch away material of grime from every corner and crevice, our hands and arms turning black with dirt and old grease. After years of forgotten slumber, the vices began to look like working tools again. We mounted them on the benches about one yard apart and we now had workstations. Feldman examined the work and distributed praise carefully, never giving false compliment. Criticism was specific, measured, without malice. Now, boys, you need to find tools that look like this. Feldman held up a hacksaw. We turned the pile we had collected upside down, and to our amazement, we saw dozens of hacksaws. Old, rusted, full of earth and dirt. So back to cleaning we went. Paraffin to wash off the dirt and grease. Then we took them apart to sand and clean. Some had a wooden handle missing, and others were bent out of shape. So we cannibalized the parts and fitted up respectable number of complete hacksaws. Feldman somehow got a collection of hacksaw blades, and we now had 20 new hacksaws ready to cut metal. The next search was for metal files. Feldman showed us how to differentiate between a rough, coarse file called a bastard. I did not know the meaning of this term in English. It came as a major surprise to me years later, after I learned the language. And a medium file with finer teeth. As we had picked up anything that looked like metal, we were pleased to find that we had brought in a sizable number of files. Slowly we cleaned them up and added wooden handles that were retrieved from other files. A wire brush was used to clean up the files well, as a file won't work when the grooves are filled with dirt. We learned that the best files were marked Sheffield, made in England. In the pile were little metal instruments that looked like a horse's head. Rusted, they seemed useless. But lovingly cleaned up and carefully oiled, they became calipers, now gleaming and perfectly useful for measuring. We did the same with metal right angles, and we had enough of them for a few on every workbench. After a few weeks of these preparations, we were nearly ready to start, but we still needed a drilling machine and a grindstone. After Feldman explained what they looked like, we were sent out again to scavenge. This time we knew the ghetto area better, so we began searching the places that looked likely they had been workshops one time. We found a drill that was so heavy that we had to call for reinforcements. We dragged this clumsy old cast-iron floor model drill press into our school, where it took a few days to get the clunker back into a presentable form. Feldman tightened the bearings with a few tricks we did not understand and declared himself satisfied. A motor with a grindstone at each end was also found but the grindstones were misshapen. We built a wooden stand and mounted a grinder on top of it. And then Feldman showed us how to shape the grindstones by carefully wearing away the uneven surfaces. Useful items like drill bits, files, calipers, metal rulers, and scraping needles began clandestinely to show up in our school. Jews working in official workshops that had been set up in the ghetto to serve the needs of the German authorities were supplying us. Everything was a treasure. Imitating Feldman, we all tried to find a rough shirt with a chest pocket that had a narrow part sewn off at the side to hold a caliper. To walk around with your own caliper stuck in that narrow slot was a source of immense pride, and I asked my mother to sew a vertical seam in my shirt pocket. Feldman had a Mauser caliper of his own, from the same German company that made the famous Mauser pistols and rifles. I still have a Mauser caliper in my workshop that I obtained after the war, which I cherish. Now the classes began. Our first task was to learn to file a cube out of the piece of rusted iron we had cut from the old bed frames. Guiding a file in a flat pass is a difficult skill that takes several months to master. At first, when we filed the metal piece and looked through a rectangle frame to see how flat the piece was, we saw a curved mountain. (laughs) Feldman regularly took a student's file and demonstrated the rhythmic movement of hands and body needed to guide the file forward with pressure and back with a free slide. It looked so simple, but we couldn't do it. My friend Yankele tried jamming the file between his stomach and the bench and sliding the metal piece on it to get a flat surface. Feldman noticed this, took a hammer and smashed the metal on an anvil. Yankele had to cut a new piece and start from scratch. Eventually, most of us learned to produce a cube with flat right-hand angles. My view of iron as a hard, unmanageable material changed. I started to see it as malleable and transformable. I loved the power I had to shape and form it, and the pleasure of doing it successfully remained with me for life. A special challenge was to use a hammer and chisel, the way Feldman did. He would hold the chisel with three fingers over the metal and hit the hammer hard on top of the chisel. The challenge was to hit the chisel with a two-pound hammer without looking at the head of the chisel. My eyes had to be on the working surface where the cutting edge of the chisel was hitting the metal. If I missed the head of the chisel, the hammer came down hard on my fingers. I was determined to learn, so I wounded myself many times till I got it right. That skill has remained with me to this day. I know where the hammer will come down without looking at its trajectory. Feldman was a man of few words and a wonderful teacher. He would demonstrate the correct technique again and again, then walk away to let us practice on our own. Later, he would inspect our progress. After about six months studying the mechanical skills of shaping metal, we began learning locksmithing and the fascinating world of lock construction was opened to us. We learned about repairing all kinds of locks, fitting springs, making keys. We designed our own locks, making every part from those old iron bedsteads and polishing them to a mirror finish. We had an exhibition of our work, and the Nazi officers came to inspect it. I was proud that one officer pointed to my shiny handmade padlock, but then very unhappy when he said he wanted it and took it away. To add insult to injury, I had to make him a second key. I remember the day Feldman brought in an old lathe. We worked for a week cleaning it and setting it up with a motor and a belt drive. Now we could learn to operate a lathe. It was exciting to see what new forms we could shape. Everyone took turns learning the finer points of operating a lathe, cutting threads of precise dimensions and nuts to fit them. Working with metal fascinated me. Eventually, I came to feel that each metal had a taste of its own. The bite of the file into steel felt different than it did for brass or copper. I could recognize each metal blindfolded. When drilling into steel, oil was useful to assist the drill bit to dry faster. But for aluminum, oil did not help at all. All this activity took place amidst the most appalling conditions of ghetto life. Our survival was always in question. From day to day, we did not know who would come back to school. From time to time, boys just disappeared, their fates unknown. Being in school took our minds away from the thoughts of impending doom, from our fear for tomorrow. Even in this desperate situation, the leaders insisted that we study Jewish subjects. We discussed history and we played chess. We even put on a play by I.L. Peretz. As I look back, I must give credit to those dedicated and inspired teachers. Life in the ghetto was miserable, and the school was a place of respite. One part of the training that no one liked was blacksmithing. It wasn't that we didn't like the work. It was a teacher. I think we called him Joseph the blacksmith. He was old, grumpy, and impatient. And the shed where he worked was dark, dirty, and smoky. Yosef was short and somewhat bent over. He did not speak to students on principle. When he was trained as an apprentice, the master craftsman had not spoken to him either but everyone knew that Joseph was a genius with iron. With the most primitive equipment, he could make anything from a multi-leaf spring for a car to a delicate clasp for a door. When my turn came to go to his workshop, I went with some trepidation. I walked in, and he immediately turned his back to me. Facing the forge, he turned up the blower, to fan the flames, then picked up a piece of steel about six inches long with a large pliers that was suspended from the ceiling on a wire. He pushed one end of the steel into the fire and waited. I stood there waiting for something to happen. After a while, the end of the piece of steel became red hot. He pulled it out of the fire and placed the hot end on the anvil while holding it with the long pliers. Then he picked up a small hammer and softly hit the hot end of the steel bar. He looked at me and I looked back. He gave a loud grunt and pointed with his head to a 10 kilogram hammer on the corner. I got the hint, picked up the large hammer. Again, he hit the steel with his little hammer and looked up at me with his bloodshot eyes. I got it. He wants me to hit the steel where he was pointing with his little hammer. So I lifted the large hammer over my head and came down hard on the hot steel. Instead of a bang, it made a soft sound like hitting stiff rubber, but the steel showed a flat spot where I had hit it. He turned the steel over and again hit the end with his little hammer. I came down with my big hammer. The steel now began to look like a chisel, and I realized what we were producing. The work began to go smoothly. He tapped with a little hammer. I banged down with a big one at the spot he indicated. He smoothly controlled the shape of the steel piece. I delivered the blows that formed it. I felt happy. All was going well, like the anvil chorus in the opera Gypsy Baron. Then he hit the metal twice. I came down with a big hammer, and the steel went flying across the workshop. Now he talked. He cursed me in Yiddish, Russian, Polish, and several other languages, I think. Words and curses I have never heard before. That was also an education for me. Apparently in blacksmith's language, one hit means "go, and two hits means "stop." But a master doesn't talk to an apprentice, a species regarded as lower than the earth. Finally, when Yosef ran out of curses, he picked up the cooled steel from the floor and put it back in the forge. We eventually finished making the chisel. When it was completed. He dipped the dip in cold water, which hissed from contact with a red-hot metal. He withdrew it, and I watched the colors change from orange to yellow to blue. Then he dropped the whole piece into the water. This process hardens the end of the chisel so it can cut into metal without blunting. I decided there and then that I was going to learn from him, no matter how he tried to put me off. Once I got mad at him and I shouted, talk to me, don't grunt. (laughs) To my surprise, he began talking to me. He said he could see that I really wanted to learn, not like the others. I won't repeat what he called my fellow students. (laughs) My admiration for Josef's skill knew no bounds. He was a craftsman of the highest level. I loved the harmony of his movements. The other boys complained about him and the dark, sooty place where he had to work. And I told them how I enjoyed the process of lifting the hammer, aiming, and then connecting with the steel. How it sounded to me like piff, puff, pui. Lift the heavy hammer, boom, hit the metal, then chick-chuck the double echo of the hit. I have had a number of nicknames in my life, but pif paf puy Bomchik Chak chuck was one of the strangest. For the remainder of the time we were in the ghetto, that was my name in the school, pif paf puy Bomchik Chak. The students were not lazy. They did not mind the time it took to say it all. Every time. <laughs> Later, when I became a teacher, they still said it but behind my back. The skills I learned from my teachers, Feldman and Josef the blacksmith, would later save both my life and my father's. But at the time, while we were still in the ghetto, I was just happy to make a little money for myself by using what I had learned. One area of business that showed promise was fixing sewing machines to sell to farmers in exchange for food. The farmers wanted only Singer sewing machines. If anyone had a different make, like a Pfaff sewing machine, there were artists in the ghetto who could paint the Singer logo over the Pfaff logo with gold paint. My job was to repair the broken parts or create replacement parts. Once I had to produce a spindle for a sewing machine foot drive, a delicate part. I did not know how to bend the steel shaft for the eccentric drive, so I went to my blacksmith's friend. I was amazed at his dexterity. I later mounted his shaped steel in the lathe, and it ran through with no wobble. It was perfect. I also learned how to open a Yale lock without a key. When people lost their keys and could not get into their homes, I was a one take called. I received an either money or some food for this service. People always wanted to know how I did it, but this was my professional secret. I'm grateful to Feldman, who not only taught me to be a locksmith, but also showed me the beauty of various lock mechanisms and designs. To this day, I'm fascinated by locks, the part they have played in the history of civilization. The ancient Egyptians had wooden locks and keys that closely resembled our modern Yale locks, except they were much larger. I developed another little side business in the ghetto. I discovered that it was possible to heat water in a glass or a pot very quickly by inserting two electrodes in the water and plugging them into electricity. I began to produce these heaters and sell them. My heaters became popular because they were well-made and did not cause shocks to the user, as rougher models did. In any case, they were very dangerous appliances. One could easily get electrocuted by touching the bare electrodes while they were plugged in. But these were tough times, and one had to use whatever was available. Like everyone else in the ghetto, when students in our school turned 15, they had to present themselves for a slave labor work detail. Later on, the minimum age for slave labor duty was lower to 12. Due to the training they had received at the school, some of them got good jobs, either inside or outside the ghetto, in the workshops that produced items for the war effort. The opportunity to work in a factory was, in many cases, a lifesaver, as it enabled people to obtain food while outside the ghetto, and the work was easier than digging ditches or building roads. In March 1943, When I turned 15, the school offered me the opportunity to become an assistant instructor. I don't know what went on behind the scenes or how the school management got me excused from slave labor, but I was very happy to become a teacher. Feldman was a model for my teaching style, not Joseph the blacksmith. The school had grown and there were more students. Soon I got to be a full instructor with morning and afternoon classes of my own. The students were secretly amused by my enthusiasm for their subjects, but most did their best to learn. I had some odd students. One was a medical doctor who decided he wanted to learn metalwork. He was very diligent, worked hard, and soon became quite skilled. Once he produced a tap holder, a somewhat complicated tool to hold a tap for cutting threads in a metal hole. He was very proud of it and showed it to all his doctor friends. Teacher Feldman's dry comment was, he is a doctor amongst metal workers and a metal worker among doctors. We had several classes alternating between mornings and afternoons. We taught a the theory of metals, engineering drawing, and some clandestine cultural classes on Hebrew and Jewish history, which were forbidden by the Germans. All these activities allowed me to direct my mind away from the one thought that floated in my head during the three years in the ghetto. How will I die? I imagined being shot and thrown still alive into a trench with dead bodies on top of me, buried alive. One day in 1944, a Jewish man I did not know appeared in the school. He opened his leather jacket and pointed his camera at me while I worked at the bench with a few students. A click, and he was gone. Cameras were forbidden to us in the ghetto. If he had been caught, he would have been executed immediately. I later learned that the brave photographer's name was George Kaddish known in the ghetto as Hirsch Kadushin. Exactly 50 years later, in May 1994, I was astonished to find a copy of this photograph in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C.